We knew that if we wanted to go have meaningful impact on the world, we'd need to solve big problems. And so we started by looking holistically, where can we go have impact? And we knew a lot of people who worked on enterprise technologies, like uh, IT technologies. We knew people who worked on consumer, but we didn't know a lot of other people in Silicon Valley thinking about infrastructure. Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guests today are Sanjit Biswas and John Bickett. In 2015, they co-founded Samsara, an industrial Internet of Things company, which recently hit $1 billion in annual recurring revenue. The company has been recognized on the Forbes Cloud 100 list, among other recognitions it's received. Sanjit is the company's chief executive officer, and John is the company's CTO. They held the same titles at the other company they co-founded, Meraki, which built the first cloud-managed enterprise networking products, including switches, firewalls, and Wi-Fi access points. Meraki was sold to Cisco for $1.2 billion in 2012. And now for a word from our partner, Codium. The last year has been filled with conversations around generative AI, but are you wondering how to actually get real value today from this revolutionary technology? Codium, spelled C-O-D-E-I-U-M, is an AI-powered tool that is securely personalized to your internal data, making software development teams 20% more productive and often writing over 40% of new code. This clears out time to tackle more problems and multiply your business outcomes. Join a long list of companies from startups to Fortune 500s that have chosen Codium as their internal productivity tool of choice for their software development teams. Reach out at Codium.com. That's C-O-D-E-I-U-M.com. And now on to the interview. Sanjit, John, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you both. Great. Thanks for having us, Peter. Excellent. Well, Sanjit, maybe I'll begin with you. Um, I, I would love to have you set a bit of context for the conversation as to the business that Samsara is in. Maybe take a, a quick uh, couple of minutes and, and describe it in greater detail than I've had an opportunity to do so, so far. Sure. Happy to. So to understand Samsara, it's really important to understand our customer. We serve the world of physical operations. So if you think about the construction companies, the energy utilities, the local governments, all the people that are really running the planet's infrastructure, that's who are using our products. And what we do for them is we help make their operations safer, more efficient, more sustainable. If you think about the work that they do every day, it's asset intensive. Think big construction equipment, lots of trucks, lots of people out there. It can be dangerous at times. And uh, it's, it's hard work. And so what we're doing is taking technology, new technologies like AI and sensor data and kind of cloud, bringing it into the field and making it practically useful for them to go and reduce their risk or spend less money on fuel or find ways to emit less carbon. These are the challenges they're facing every single day. The way they've done things historically has been with pen and paper and kind of just hard work. We now see an opportunity to bring these modern technologies into the field and go have a lot of impact. So you mentioned our revenue numbers. We're now over a billion in revenue. We also serve about 20,000 different organizations around the world. And uh, we tend to focus on the larger, more complex physical operations. So if you think about uh, some of our customers would be firms like DHL, delivering all the packages and parcels on the road, or XPO Logistics, or some large utility companies. So hopefully that gives your listeners a bit of a mental picture of who we serve. That's very helpful. I appreciate that context. And, and John, uh, Sanjit just mentioned artificial intelligence and the fact that it's really kind of core to Samsara with video and telematic uh, analytics at the core of the offerings. Um, I, I imagine this give, gives you a lot of reason to address um, how you manage and leverage products and customer analytics, more generally speaking. And I wonder if you could take a moment and talk a bit about your overall approach to data and artificial intelligence. Yeah, d definitely. So at, at Samsara, the way we think about it is we're building a 
a system of record for physical operations. So really helping uh, folks to understand the state of their operations and give them um, a, a virtual kind of interface to interact with it uh, and then track metrics uh, and look at insights about sustainability uh, and safety predominantly. So one interesting thing, especially with the emergence of a lot of the new AI technologies is how can we take that system of record and start migrating to a system of prediction uh, for our customers. So there are a bunch of really interesting things that our customers have been able to do and make data-driven decisions uh, with our system. And we're kind of starting to really think through and and, and go through and, uh, and understand what can AI do to help us predict and let uh, folks make decisions before things start to be problems or issues in the field or how they can kind of get ahead of a lot of the stuff going on. So there's a bunch of really interesting applications that, that, that we have there. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Uh, and staying with you for a moment longer, John, how do you think about the convergence of IT and OT uh, in the field on, uh, and, and on equipment? Is, is there an optimal operating model for companies using your products? Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting, and so I, I think for for some perspective on us and, and our backgrounds, we actually used to sell into IT as part of the first company that, that we we sold, which was Meraki. We were you know building wireless access points, networking gear, switches, uh, routers, and and things like that. With Samsara, we, we we've actually ended up focusing on physical operations and selling to. OT in, in that space. And it's been a really interesting transition for us as both entrepreneurs and then actually understanding like how this technology is getting deployed in these environments. Um, I, I think the folks in, in, in operational technology are, are very focused on hard ROI. And that's been one fascinating thing for us is like, you know, they're not interested in necessarily technology for technology's sake, but if it helps them to be more efficient or be more safe and the payback periods are, are very short, they will do it. And it's kind of like a, a no-brainer. So that is one thing we've been focusing on a lot as an organization is how do we partner uh, with OT and go in? What we've ended up doing normally is folks will come to us and they usually will have heard about some of our applications, whether it's telematics or video safety and, and these types of applications. Uh, we'll start engaging with them. And usually one of the first meetings we have with them is actually us sitting down kind of as technology partners to our customers and saying, can you give us in some insight into what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go with your business and what your biggest business problems are? And we basically use that as the beginning of a feedback loop. They probably already have some preconceived ideas of the things that we can do with technology and the applications that they may have heard some of their peers engaging with us on. But usually there's like one or two big projects that's actually like core to their business goals for the next year that they're trying to solve. And we basically kind of from a technology perspective have a discussion with them on, on like, well, wh what can we help with? How could we help you solve some of those problems? And it's a much more interactive back and forth with the customers. But nailing those use cases early on starts to give us like, you know, uh, and, and especially them with the technology that we're, we're, we're dealing with some early wins. And then they just get a bunch of really interesting ideas for other areas that they could improve, you know, either safety or their efficiency in their business and really make a big difference. Um, and we just use that as a feedback loop. So, you know, we'll have some success early on with the customers and then it will just create a feedback loop. We'll come back with a couple more ideas, maybe two or three different applications, more stuff that they could put our, our equipment on uh, or other different uh, business areas where they hadn't even thought through that they could apply some of the technology that we have with them. 
And Peter, if I can add one thing, the ease of use and ease of adoption is really critical in operations. So if you think about these companies, they have tens of thousands of frontline workers. They're trying to find ways to get this technology out in the field, but it has to work and it has to be easy. And that's what we've focused on as a company. So this is almost the polar opposite of the big ERP project that you know takes five years and requires you know hundreds of people and lots of consultants. This is about trying technology that's almost as easy to use as a consumer app, but has all the sort of enterprise features that this customer needs to go and have that kind of business impact. Connecting those two dots, I think, has really been transformative for us. And it's where you see IT and OT coming together, where they say, look, we're just trying to solve business problems. We're going to use technology to do it, but it has to work. And it has to work for tens of thousands of frontline workers. Sanjit, how did uh, John and you come to focus on uh, the industrial world to begin with? Given where you had been, which was a very uh, different space, uh, how did this this opportunity present itself in a very uh, a, a different a pivot for you, for the two of you, at least uh, based upon where you'd been previously? Yeah, so a little bit of historical context. Our previous company, John mentioned, was Meraki, was a networking company, and that was our background. So John and I actually met in grad school at MIT. We were PhD students together, and we worked on computer networking. So with company number one, it was very much product first. We were technical experts, and we wanted to see that technology out in the world, put it in a box, make it possible for other people to build big networks. With Samsara, we actually started market first. So we started focused on this customer segment. And they, by the way, are absolutely massive in terms of potential for impact. So the world of physical operations makes up about 40% of the world's GDP. So these are a lot of these big frontline industries that, again, power the infrastructure of our planet. We knew that if we wanted to go have meaningful impact on the world, we would need to solve big problems. And so we started by looking holistically, where can we go have impact? And we knew a lot of people who worked on enterprise technologies, like IT technologies. We knew people who worked on consumer, but we didn't know a lot of other people in Silicon Valley thinking about infrastructure. And so these underserved markets tend to be ones where there's the greatest opportunity for impact because they just haven't been picked over in terms of problem space. And that's how we found operations. We had never driven uh, commercial trucks or worked in a warehouse or done logistics. So there's a pretty steep learning curve, uh, but it was really exciting because we got to kind of see problems with fresh eyes. And talk a bit about getting getting over that learning curve. Uh, uh, as you say, it's a, a, a new persona that you're serving. It's not an industry you know from the inside, from having been a past executive in it, for example. Uh, yeah. Talk a bit about the methods that you use in order to do so. Well, you know, that's kind of what every startup has to go through is finding that product market fit. For us, because we were outsiders, we were very sort of open about learning. And so we would essentially cold call folks uh, here in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area and ask, could we, we're, you know, we're building technology for operations and, and industrial operations. We'd like to understand how you operate, how things work. And so we spent time with food distribution companies here in Northern California and would just kind of almost be like the intern for a day, right? Just kind of big ears, big eyes, watch how they, they did things. And that's when we saw all these really practical challenges. They were running pen and paper process on clipboards. They were planning routes with big maps on the wall uh, and, you know, just kind of figuring, okay, we'll go to the Northeast section, then we'll go South. That didn't make any sense to us. So we were starting this company in 2015. By then, you know, you had Uber, you had DoorDash, you had all these modern technologies and you were kind of wondering why is there such a big gap? And that's how we found product market fit very quickly is with those fresh eyes, we came in, we didn't know anything about the legacy systems, but we were kind of saying, well, why not do this in a much more modern, real-time, AI-driven, cloud-based way? And it was a very natural fit at that point. But given a, a customer who is comfortable with uh, very antiquated methods, pen and paper yeah. in some cases, as you said, was the 
getting the the market to fit the product, getting them to see the the rationale for change. Uh, were there challenges you had to overcome there in making your pitch? No, you know, you'd be surprised. So by 2015, I think everyone had gone through the generational change of being comfortable with smartphones and technology. Everyone that we met with wanted something different. They wanted something better. They just didn't know how to make it happen because they had been through these really painful IT projects where they said, you know, that last project took us about five years or 10 years and, you know, cost a lot more than we expected. So they were looking for the sort of ease of use that they saw with, you know, the Facebook app and their phone, but the business application that we offer. And so that's where the gap was. No one had built modern enterprise technology for this operations customer at that point. John, you offered some thoughts about artificial intelligence and the importance of it uh, in how Samsara does what it does. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more specifically about generative AI, now a year and a quarter almost into the public emergence of it anyway. Uh, how, do, how do you see its evolution and how does it factor into the plans that you have? Definitely. I think um, generative AI is obviously, it's going to be transformational for, I believe, all, all businesses. Uh, one question is just what does the timeline you know, look like? And, you know, kind of from my perspective, you know, I, I with, with Meraki, we live through the transition from on-premise to cloud. This uh, generative AI and I think the rollout of it uh, to industry reminds me, I, I think, of a lot of the early cloud days where, you know, in, in some aspects, some of some of the technology feels a little bit like toyish applications and we haven't actually quite, you know, imagine how it's going to roll out through the enterprise and kind of seep into everyone's workflows day to day. But the interesting thing, if we reflect back on how the transition from on-prem to cloud happened, that, that was really a transition that affected all companies that do software development. Like, you you know, it's almost impossible now to walk into a software company that that doesn't use the cloud in some kind of way. And I think the transition with generative AI is going to be very similar. It's going to change how we develop software. It's going to change how we interact with software and, and the interfaces that, that, that we use. And then I think on top of pure AI companies, it's going to end up impacting every company that does software development. So I, I think that will take some period of time to work through. And, and kind of now we've seen a lot of the promise and everyone's kind of starting to think through what all the really interesting use cases are. Um, but one one fascinating thing for us is like, we already have the endpoints available. Like everyone already actually has very powerful, you know, kind of essentially supercomputers in their hand that are actually able to run a lot of these models. And over the next 10 years, I think we will see a huge amount of progress in in the capabilities that these have, but uh, a, a lot of the interesting enterprise use cases still need to be worked through. Like, how do we handle uh, security? How do we handle access control? How do we handle data sharing? Like, these are really interesting problems that I think if we look back to how the cloud transition, you know, worked through is like, we were able to solve them. <laughs> Some of them took a couple of years to actually understand, like, how should we interact with these systems? What, is, what are those use cases? What are the patterns and the design patterns look like? And then how long does it take us all to kind of get used to it? I know one incredible thing that uh, has uh, been going on the past few years is starting to have different interfaces Two, two things, like if you've used ChatGPT using the text interface is actually incredible. Like that's a different uh, interaction uh, with, with software of uh, th than we traditionally have. So I think some of these things will be really interesting just to see how they, how, how, you know, what we can do with them, how how far we can push them, if that makes sense. And some of it will be, we'll just need to iterate a little bit on it as, as an industry to go through. 
Can you talk a bit about the team that you lead as well, John, and especially given the fast pace of change in technology, how the kind of evolution of the skill sets and the means of operating that team has? How do you think about that? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, it, it is interesting. Uh, we, you know, obviously on our, our R&D team, we, we work with a lot of folks that are multi, multidisciplinary. You know, uh, we, we have we have a team that works on AI and then a team that uh, works on data. So, you know, in fact, a lot of the stuff that's going on in AI is, is super uh driven by uh you know there's the models and the really interesting technology there there's also data set and data set curation and trying to make sure that like it we we have uh things that are that are representative of of what's going on in the real world so that you know when we're trying to do prediction that it that it lines up uh and then also there just are a lot of other aspects of like once we design these systems and have the models that, that work and things like that how do we actually roll them out and how do we get people to interface with them so that is both back-end systems that folks are developing it is front-end stuff and then it is working with uh, the design teams to actually figure out how and what the most effective ways to interact with this kind of these data these workflows and these applications are and and that was actually a very deliberate build for us because we knew the power and potential of data so you know we have millions of sensors out in the world that are pulling in this data and just to put some numbers on it we're talking about 80 billion plus minutes of hd video footage from our dash cameras we're talking about six trillion data points hundreds of millions of workflows. So this is what we use to go train the AI models. And it's kind of been like a layered pyramid, right? So we started with that kind of data layer down at the bottom, made sure it was high quality, it was clean, it was organized, there was metadata attached to it. And then as AI models have picked up in terms of performance and scale, we've been able to run that data through and, and train these models and then go deploy them out to the edge. That was a very deliberate multi-year kind of build for the long-term approach that we took with it. Um, and it, I don't think it was obvious to people a few years ago when we were starting why we were putting so much emphasis on data and data organization as opposed to just you know hardware or solve a problem. Most of our team is actually a software team. 80 plus percent of our R&D headcount is really allocated towards that software effort. And that is all about data at, at its core. Sanjit, you and John certainly have the advantage now in scaling uh, this business and having done so previously at Meraki. And I wonder what lessons you drew from that or or changes you made, perhaps an approach now doing it a second time over, obviously a different context, different business, different customer, all the differences we've articulated so far in this conversation. Uh, and yet I have to imagine there's a lot that is similar uh, as you think about growing pains, continuing to seize opportunities, professionalizing all that you do, uh, emblematic of where you're going, not where you've been. Uh, talk a bit about some of the, the game plan and perhaps some of the differences this time around having done it before. Yeah, you know, I think there are numerous differences. You you kind of went through some of them, but no two periods of time are the same. These markets are, of course, very different. Uh, technology adoption is different now than it was 15 years ago, that sort of thing. So there, there's a lot we can talk about with the differences. I think what's more interesting are the similarities between the companies, what we brought with us, to your point. Um, John mentioned one of them, which is this idea of a customer feedback loop. That was something we kind of discovered organically in our first business at Meraki. This idea, it, it makes common sense, right? Spending time with customers, listening to their feedback, and then going and implementing product based on that. It's actually not how every company operates. Many companies start with the technology and it's like a, throwing a dart from across the room and trying to hit a bullseye. It's, it's very hard. And what we discovered is running a feedback loop, being much more of like a heat-seeking missile, makes sense because you can be data-driven. You can actually be dynamic and listen to what the challenges are in the market as opposed to guessing them from outside. So that's something that we we brought with us and, and really amplified here at Samsara. It's, it's a core value in terms of how we operate. 
And then the other thing is actually the importance of culture. Um, so as we scaled up both organizations, we realized we couldn't be everywhere at once. In fact, we couldn't be on the hiring panels or the, the welcome sessions. It would just be not practical or feasible to train thousands of people. So we actually had to come up with a shared language and kind of like a shared program or DNA, whatever analogy you want to use of how we work. And that's something that we've actually refreshed as we've scaled up because how you work as a 10 person early stage startup and how you work as a multi-thousand person public company is a little bit different, but you need to be mindful about it. And it's not something that you want to have come together by accident. You want to actually be very deliberate about engineering the culture to go meet the business objectives. John, we've talked about numerous uh, technology trends of relevance uh, in this business, uh, data and analytics, generally speaking, AI more specifically, of course, IoT, the centerpiece of what you do as well. Um, are there other technology trends that excite you as you look ahead to the future that you you uh, are in the process of investing in or, or uh, you believe will be part of your uh, strategic fabric in the foreseeable future? Yeah, I mean, definitely you touched on them. AI and, and, and data are, are two of the huge areas that we're you know fundamentally investing. And those are the biggest ones that are directly relevant for a business. Um, but kind of like you said, there are a lot of adjacent areas where there are just fascinating things going on. Like one of, one of the areas I've followed a lot, there, there's obviously been a huge amount of technology development with self-driving and things like that. And there's a lot of spillover you know, from um, those types of technologies that, that's, uh, that, that's very relevant to us. The other really uh, fascinating area that I think there is a lot of development, especially in the, the R uh, early kind of in the R&D space is in um, robotics. And there are many different applications there, but I, I think the next five to 10 years will be very interesting to see how those kind of develop from both the perspective of uh, systems, even thinking about like warehouse robotics that, you know, traditionally like look a little bit simpler actually than like, I think what we, what a lot of folks kind of imagine when we start thinking through what, what does robotics mean kind of from a sci-fi perspective, if that makes sense. Uh, but I, I think we will start to see a lot of these technologies kind of develop and people to people really start to figure out what some of the key use cases are. And I, I think that'll start seeping its way into uh, physical operations. The other one that is is really exciting that I, I think will make a, a, a big difference is tele teleoperations too. We've already started to see that in some different applications, um, but we've started to see a, a bunch of a fair number of early adopters kind of in the physical operations space start to look at that for specific use cases. And I think as as people start to work through where does it make sense, where are there safety issues that that the teleoperations like really has a huge amount of uh, of benefit and risk reduction. That'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. If I can add a third one, um, and it's something we're seeing with customers, they're taking, John just touched on two that are very exciting trends and a little bit more hardware and AI related. Um, the, the third one that we're seeing is around data and just taking this data and getting more value from it. So to kind of put a specific example on it, we have a customer named Liberty Energy. They're an oil field services company. They're fairly large. Um, they have a ton of telematics data and safety data on our platform. What they were able to do is actually plumb that data out and go identify $10 million of tax savings. And they did that by putting this into their business intelligence software, which again, they didn't need to have IT folks get involved and write code. They could just kind of do a no-code, low-code interface, slice and dice the data, and find a massive amount of tax savings. So that's something that has happened in the IT world. People have started plumbing this data and getting more value from it. In the operations world, data tends to still be siloed. And we're now seeing kind of what happened in IT over the last 10 or 20 years happen in operations where they're saying, 
this is great for my day-to-day, -day, like the workflows and so on. It's also great for my accounting and analytics team to go find more value in. And that's a maybe third trend that is uh, maybe less intuitive to people, but it's definitely happening behind the scenes. Very interesting. I appreciate each of you sharing some perspectives uh, across those trends. Uh, Sanjit, I wanted to ask you, uh, the exit from being a private company uh, in the two instances were very different. One, an acquisition I mentioned earlier, uh, mm -hmm. of uh, Cisco acquired your first organization. This one, uh, 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 Samsara, went public a little more than two years ago. Talk a bit about uh, running a public company as opposed to becoming part of a larger entity and, and uh, the, some of the differences. There are some obvious ones, of course, but how it's been to, to run a publicly traded company now for the past two plus years. You know, I think we're finally getting the hang of it. We're eight quarters in and, uh, you know, it's it's been actually a great time to be public. And I say that with a grain of salt, right? Like we've been through some challenging times in the public markets, but in terms of what we focused on with our customers, what we focused on in terms of growth and profitability, the investors have really understood where the, the business is headed. And that I think is really important as a public company to communicate clearly, to be very consistent with results and performance, and just to go execute. And so that's something that we have deeply ingrained at Samsara. Uh, Meraki was, was sort of born at a different time, was acquired at a different time. This was post 2008. So you know the markets were in a very different state. And the scale of that business at, at the time felt great to us. We were about $100 million in revenue. But now what we've seen is a lot happens between $100 million and call it a billion, and then the next stage, which is a few billion in revenue. So um, I think we've learned a lot as operators uh, over the last decade of what does it take to really scale and anticipate that scale and work backwards from where you're trying to go to. So that, I think, maybe has less to do with being public or private and more to do with just having long time horizons. John, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, as uh, I believe it was Sanjit was mentioning, the two of you met while uh, pursuing PhDs uh, at MIT. Uh, first of all, and perhaps your motivations were different despite a, a similar academic pathway, uh, when did the idea of starting businesses occur to you? Uh, were you on a pathway to become an academic, for instance, and this was a pivot, or was it always a, a sort of a, a, an attempt to get deep on a topic until a an idea to pursue occurred to you. Talk a bit about the genesis of of, of going uh, down the entrepreneurial pathway. I'm always kind of fascinated by these questions because it's. It, I'm always fascinated to hear from other folks that have started businesses, like what their journey was and what their path was. With Meraki, it was really, I think that was an interesting use case uh, uh, in comparing, contrasting Meraki and Samsara. So, you know, like you said, I, I was a, a network student. It was actually kind of my dream, you know, to build networking products at that time. And, and, and in fact, a lot of the products that Sanja and I were, were designing, and I'm curious, like Sanja, what, what, how you would answer this also, but it was kind of like designing products for myself. You know, like I was like, I, I had an idea, you know, that, that was what I felt like I was kind of like born to do in some sense, uh, which was re really interesting. So when we ended up starting the company, it was actually uh, partially like we had been building out a, a big wireless network and essentially like, in a little bit of a different context, we had been designing products. <laughs> uh, we were offering, uh, we were building wireless routers at the time because there weren't a lot of big Wi-Fi networks, that, especially in the outdoor space. And we were, we had a project where we would basically give away network access uh, to grad students that uh, were a part of the community there at, at MIT. And in exchange, we would run experiments in the evening that were much more academically focused. So looking at things like 
how uh, what what were packet delivery rates? How did different modulations work at different times and things like that? Academically interesting project, projects, but at the same time, we realized our kind of value proposition for folks was we needed to make a product that like gave away act you know free Wi-Fi during the day so that we could do that at night. Which in effect, now that you look back at it, you're like, oh, it kind of sounds like product development. It's just <laughs> you know a little bit different from a company. So I think that was uh, you know once we started to realize we're like, oh, there's a bunch of really interesting stuff here and in order to build the network we had to develop a lot of technology that was you know how do you make these things kind of automatically configure themselves set them because we only had a couple of us that were maintaining this like larger network those are things once we started the the company that were actually directly applicable to the networking community in general especially as folks started to you know use wi-fi everywhere all of a sudden they were like i need an access point to cover essentially every square foot of a, of an office building and they probably didn't have as big of a staff to go do that so the stuff that we were working on was was very valuable from 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 that perspective so that was some of i think kind of the transition in in, in some ways if we were kind of like intuitively doing a lot of the uh, early early product work uh, and and kind of market discovery almost in, in effect. And once we kind of just pivoted to the enterprise, it, it got uh, things started to make more sense. And we kind of how Sanja mentioned earlier, we could start to run those feedback loops on like what worked with the customers. And I think th that's been one interesting thing. Once you start doing that, you can feel the impact that you're having. You could feel, you know, customers start to use your stuff. Uh, and they talk to you about what they liked and what they didn't like. And then you're like, well, I could come up with a couple ways to improve it and things like that. It just starts this feedback loop that just starts to run on its own in, in effect. And I think, uh, you know, towards the end, and actually that was kind of why we uh, why we got involved with physical operations and things like that. We we thought this was an area that we could just have a, as technologists and partnering with these folks we could just have a big impact. And that that had been one of the, I think I realized through starting the first company was one of the biggest things that that, that was a driver for me as an entrepreneur was wanting to have want, wanting to have impact, getting a lot of uh, satisfaction out of people using your product. I think the other thing that I, I know both Sanjay and I kind of tend to do this after working on a lot of access points and building them, you look up at the ceiling a lot <laughs> because you know where people put access points and stuff like that. And, and let me tell you, it is the most amazing thing to be able to go out. And, and I know everybody on the, on the Meraki team and the folks that are still working on these products just do the same thing. It's incredibly validating to go out into the real world, to walk into a coffee shop or anywhere else, like look up and see an access point that, you know, you know, you had a, you had a part in, and, 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 and working on that, that's just incredibly validating. So I think a lot of that was just like, you know, almost a, makes you compelled <laughs> in some sense to to want to have an impact to want to seek the, these ways out that you can you can contribute yeah and and peter it's it's interesting to kind of think back because 20 years ago wi-fi was a brand new technology like you might have had it in your family room or something like that but it wasn't ubiquitous uh broadband and internet access was still expensive so that historical context is important Really, what we were doing, as John mentioned, we were kind of building a product without knowing we were building a product. It was a research prototype. It's very large scale. But what Meraki did was put that technology in a box. It made it possible for other people to build really large networks. And that is, I think, that initial feedback loop that got us super excited. I had a little bit more of an academic pathway in mind of like we were almost we were all but dissertation. We were almost at the finish line. And uh, what you what we saw very quickly is when we put the technology in a box, it was way more compelling than just putting the source code online or writing an academic research paper. Building a product 
made it possible for people to really get value out of the technology as opposed to appreciating it at like a academic level of how does a routing work or something like that. You could see real people using it. And so that I think was a, a light bulb or aha moment. And it was not the, the most uh, intuitive or easy pathway for us. We were grad students in Boston. We had no network of venture capitalists around us. We had no capital of our own. So there was a lot of figuring out we had to do in terms of how do we get this thing off the ground? And again, this is kind of almost 20 years ago that we were doing this and the, the venture ecosystem was much smaller back then. So uh, it, was, it was a bit more uncharted territory and we were doing hardware, software and cloud, which was pretty outlandish at the time, right? So uh, it, there were a lot of kind of hurdles or roadblocks in the way, but once we saw that potential for impact of putting this technology in a box, we just wanted to figure out a way to make it happen. Sanjay, I'd love to also ask you about your collaboration as a duo. Uh, you've uh, co-founded now two companies. Uh, you've held the same titles in each of those companies as well. So you seem to have found like a, a great way of, of interacting together. Um, can you talk a bit about the, the nature of the partnership, which uh, clearly has done quite well now two times over and the way in which the two of you work together? I can imagine perhaps that maybe you've got some, uh, no doubt, overlapping strengths, but also probably some uh, complementary ones as well. Talk a bit about the, the nature of this uh, partnership, if you would. Yeah, you know, I think there's there's a lot of consistency in it, even from when we were grad students. So we worked on this research project that John mentioned called RoofNet. Uh, there weren't a lot of us back then. It was a small research team. But even then, John was predominantly writing a lot of the software. I was out kind of helping get the thing built and, and kind of helping organize it. But, uh, but at the end of each day, we would always sync. We would kind of talk about what we learned, what some of the technical challenges were, what we needed to do next. So I think it was helpful that I had the sort of technical background and context um, and then John also has a really good business sense as well. And, uh, you know, we've been able to sort of work as a partnership uh, across these three different instances, right? Academic research, Meraki, and now Samsara, because we have that shared understanding of the world and shared alignment. We're, we're both trying to have a lot of impact in the world. So it's actually really helpful to have that co-founder co relationship where you're deeply long-term aligned, you have a lot of shared experience, but you're two different people. So you can kind of work off each other and also provide that feedback of like, I don't think that's the right approach or, you know, maybe we're missing X. That that often tends to be something that it's hard to get in a more professional environment. Yeah, excellent. I'll, I'll uh, trouble you both for one more uh, trip down memory lane uh, to ask you to reflect on some of the difference makers for each of you on your pathways uh, to becoming entrepreneurs, uh, some of the secrets to your success, if you will, especially tuned perhaps for others who might wish to walk in your footsteps. John, could I, could I trouble you to go first on that one? Yeah, I think um, it, it's kind of one, one of those fascinating things. Uh, looking back, when you look back, especially to your more formative experiences, it's all, at least for me, when I go through and, and think back to the ones I'm most thankful for, it's always the most challenging environments and the ones at the time that I would be like, I am not really enjoying this experience. <laughs> but in, in fact, I think they're, uh, they're the spots, uh, wh whether it's, you know, a challenging project you're working through, a challenging situation you're working through with other people. If you start to view things kind of as practice for much bigger things that you'll uh, have, have later down the line. I, you know, I've always, I'm just super thankful for those formative experiences, whether, uh, and, and the tough feedback that people give you, uh, you know, early on when it really might be the hard thing for them to do, uh, in the moment, but actually like in the, in, in the long term, you're actually very, very grateful for, uh, both, both the, the, the honest, uh, honest feedback and then the challenges to, uh, 
just have those situations where the if you're able to work through it, it gives you much more confidence for the future. So I think every time I think back through experiences, whether it was just uh uh, you know, through through hard projects or hard times for myself, I'm actually most thankful for those. <laughs> you know, not not the not the earlier times when I kind of discovered something that I was just like very passionate about or or, or something else. But I, I'd be very curious, Sanjit, to hear hear if you have. Yeah, a... you know, I I think maybe kind of piggybacking off that, we both learned a lot just by doing, getting out there, trying things, spending time with customers, tinkering. Um, so I always encourage entrepreneurs just to get out there and try it like versus working on your business plan or your PowerPoint presentation, like that stuff's fine. It may be necessary to raise capital, but actually building the product and spending time in that customer feedback loop is absolutely essential. Um, the other is we've learned a lot by essentially learning and reading case studies of successful companies and kind of working backwards from like, let's dissect it, what really worked for them. And that could be, um, you know, some of the uh, classic great companies, whether it's uh, Hewlett Packard or an Intel, kind of back in the you know uh, pre 1990s. It could be more recent businesses like an Amazon or you name it. There are so many great company case studies out there. You can listen to podcasts, read interviews. Uh, th there's a lot of good content, and then you can also pick up the phone and and get in touch with other founders. And that's something that we've also gotten a lot of value from, which is, it's it's a great community. People help each other out because we've all been there. We've been through these building stages and, you know, there are times when you may not have the bandwidth to be able to answer questions, but it, it doesn't take much to write back a quick email. And so that's something that I think is just a great tradition in the technology industry of kind of paying it forward and helping each other out. Uh, it's really been helpful for us at least. Well, Sanjit Biswas, uh, John Bickett, thank you so much for a, for a terrific conversation. Thank you for sharing so much about your entrepreneurial journeys multiple times over now. Congratulations on your many successes and uh, really appreciate you making time for me today. Great. Thanks for having us, Peter.